Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms. Looking today at Psalm 65 and God of our salvation. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true and that it's enough and that it teaches us not only about your ways, but it tells us and it points us to the person and the work of Christ. So it not only shows us our great need of you, Lord, and our ongoing need, even after we're saved. But Lord, it shows us of our need for your people. And so Lord, as we look at this great passage before us today, may this serve as a reminder and an encouragement of our need for, yes, that very thing, encouragement in the body of Christ, one anothering each other, walking alongside of each other, to care for one another, to bear each other's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So we thank you, Lord, that your word is true and that it's enough for us and that it's binding on our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 65. Psalm 65. Hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer to you, shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seats. The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people, so that those who dwell at the end of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks, the valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together with joy. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. Occasionally, Christians ask the question, why do I need to bother to attend church? Or I've even been asked, why do I need to have and sit under expository preaching? This question is typically offered by non-believers and by nominal professors of faith in Christ. There are a number of good responses, including encouragements about the spiritual benefits of attending church and the social blessing of joining a loving Christian community, but none of these is the best or even the truest, and by that I mean the best biblical answer. 
We should all gather in the church to worship God for one reason above all others, because God is so worthy to be praised in the assembly of his people. And as we come to church, this passion to worship God should be in the forefront of our minds. If, if we have doubted or even forgotten how good and right it is to glorify God, then Psalm 65 is a sober biblical wake-up call to us. The God revealed in Scripture deserved to be praised and desires to receive our fervent commitment in faith. And so David says this in Psalm 65, verse 1, Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. Scholars have tried to determine the circumstance behind David's song of praise. Most conclude that he is referring or reflecting on the bounty of a harvest that has brought rejoicing to God's people. Perhaps there had been a famine, but then God restored his blessing on the land. Perhaps David was writing during the annual Feast of Tabernacles, one of Israel's harvest festivals, or else celebrating some great and sudden military victory. And yet none of these theories can be proved. They'll all provide good reasons for the kind of exuberant praise offered in this psalm. What Psalm 65 really shows us, though, is that God's people always have reason to lift up our hearts and praise. In whatever circumstances we find ourselves, it is always right and always beneficial to us to think about how marvelous it is to worship God in song and with joy. Psalm 65 argues that believers do not require a special reason to worship the Lord. And so we should devote portions of each day <coughs> simply to exulting in the goodness and the grace of God and praising Him from our hearts. Psalm 65's three sections, they remind us that the Lord is always worthy to be praised as a God of all grace, as we'll see in the first four verses of the psalm. And then we're going to look at the God of might from verses 5 through 8. And then we'll consider the God of plenty in verses 9 through 13. According to David, by reminding ourselves of these truths, we not only give God the praise that he deserves, but also the strength of our hope and joy for living, seeing him as the God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth, as we see in Psalm 65, 5. And when God's people begin rejoicing over the blessing that God gives them, they are sometimes criticized for being self-centered or tribally minded. And yet David begins his praise, however, by exalting God as the Savior who offers grace to everyone in Psalm 65, verse 2, which says, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Psalm 65, 1, it shows that David is thinking about the worship of God in the tabernacle upon Zion, the holy mount of Jerusalem. And there people come to offer God prayers, knowing that because of his grace, God hears them. This is a marvelous good news of Israel's God. We are not alone to deal with the overwhelming problems of life, but God's ear is open to our needs, and he answers when we pray. And even more astounding, God invites the entire human race to come to prayer. To you shall all flesh come, as verse 2 says. This is the Bible's true universalism, not the false teaching that says that all religions are the same or that everyone will go to heaven, but the free offer of salvation to all who repent to believe in Christ alone. The Bible's universalism invites everyone of whatever tribe, of whatever tongue, of whatever race to come to the true God through faith in the Lord and Savior that he has provided his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
And it's striking that David spoke of all mankind as coming to God in a, in a time when only Israelites had access to the Lord's tabernacle. In fact, few Israelites even imagined that their God could welcome the hated Gentiles. David was speaking about the future using the Hebrew imperfect tense, rejoicing that the time would come when to you shall all flesh come, as we see in Psalm 65 too. In fact, this idea was later emphasized by the prophets Micah and Isaiah who prophesied. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, as we see in Micah 4, 1-2. And by speaking of the latter days, these prophets are speaking of the coming of the Messiah and the age of grace that he would bring to the earth. And this is what Jesus emphasized to the Samaritan woman, when she asked him which was the correct mountain on which to worship God. In John 4, 23, he says, The hour is coming and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Do we ever just stop in our lives and marvel that we live in an age when God is willing to reveal his glory to anyone who submits to his truth and a spirit of faith? Do we further marvel that God is sending his spirit into the world to bring all kinds of men and women into a saving relationship with the Lord? And if we will realize that a great harvest of eternal glory is taking place in our own times through the spread of the gospel, we will exalt with David in, as we see in verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God, and to you shall vows be performed. And it's marvelous, not only that God offers salvation to anyone who come, but that God offers grace to a human race that is universally condemned in sin. David frets over his own guilt as he thinks of approaching God. In verse 3, we see, Iniquities prevail against me, he confesses. Sin prevailed against David by means of a guilty conscience that shied away from the holy God and by means of God's own wrathful horror against David's sin. And so how could David or any other person hope to come before such a holy God? David answered by rejoicing in the atonement that God has provided in verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. You see, at the heart of biblical faith is the atonement that God has offered to remove the guilt of our sin. Our problem is that no sacrifice we offer can effectively deal with our sin. Bulls, sheep, and goats were sacrificed at the tabernacle, but these animals could never substitute for a human being who deserved to be punished with death. Hebrews 10.4 states that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices therefore pointed to a payment that sinful man would make for himself, but to an atonement that God would graciously provide for a sinful people. John the Baptist announced this sacrifice by declaring of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John 1.29. Sinners are justified by God's Grace is a gift, Paul explained, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, as we see in Romans 3, 24 and 25. And David anticipates the full Old New Testament doctrine, praising the God of grace because you atone for our transgressions in Psalm 65, 3. 
If you have not offered your life to God through faith in his name, perhaps you have never heard that in the death of Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible offers atonement for you. The Bible is not a book that says what you must do to be accepted by God. Rather, it tells you of a gospel of what God has done so that you might be accepted by him into salvation. In fact, there is no greater reason to worship the Lord by submitting your life to him in faith. Many Christians also need to be reminded that God is to be praised for his grace. Perhaps the reason why so many Christians live without joyful praise to God is that they forget that their sins no longer testify against them. If you have pledged your faith in Jesus Christ, God has made him the atonement to wash away your sin. You should always rejoice to know that your sins no longer stand between you and the delighted favor of God because of the person and work of Christ. David further points out that while God offers to receive all people through the atonement he provides for sinners, he also refreshes his people with the gift of himself. He says this in verse 4, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. And since salvation is by God's grace alone, it is God who chooses the one who come near to him for salvation. Salvation is the free gift of God to those whom he elects apart from any merit of their own. And having chosen them and brought them near through the blood of his son, God satisfies his people with the blessing of his holy presence. Are you dissatisfied with life today? If you are, then perhaps you are seeking satisfaction in the things of this world rather than the Lord. You are made to know and to revel in the Lord. And so the things of the world will never fulfill you. Instead, what you need to do is draw near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Think about God as he has revealed himself in the Bible and delight yourself in his holy person and his gracious salvation. This is what David models for us as the Holy Spirit grants him such awe-filled, joyful praise for the grace of God and the God of all grace. In verse 1 he says, Praise is due to you, O God. Francis Delsgate concludes, For all that God's grace offers us, we can give no better thanks than that which we hunger and thirst after, and the poor empty soul be satisfied therein. And as David recalls the reasons for praising the Lord, his second section notes that God is not only willing, but also able to save his people, as he says in verse 5. By awesome deed you answer us with righteousness. And David is reflecting here on the way in which God has delivered his people in times past with awesome deeds, overthrowing their enemies and displaying the righteousness of God in Christ. In fact, paramount among these ten plagues rained down by God in the stubborn head of Pharaoh in order to win Israel's release from bondage in Egypt. God likewise caused the sun to stand still in the sky to give Joshua time to pursue the destruction of the wicked Canaanites. A God who can accomplish such awesome deeds as turning the Nile into blood and stopping the sun in the sky is a God who deserves to be trusted and praised by his people. Whether we are dwelling to the east or to the west, to the ends of the earth or over the farthest seas, as verse 5 of the psalm says, our mighty God offers us a strong certainty of salvation. Every Christian today who faces trouble and danger may look to heaven and pray to the God who is able, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And now David mentions three displays of the divine might of God. 
First, God shows us power in raising up the mountains. In verse 6, he says, The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might. The high peaks and the great mountain ranges from the Appalachians to the Himalayas may simply seem to be there by immovable bulk. But in fact, it was God of our salvation who raised them up and established them firmly. In David's time, mountains were considered the homes of the gods which is why idolatry so often took on high places. But Israel's God is seen as the only true God because he made and shaped every high mountain to declare the glory of the power of God. And second, God has power not only to raise up high mountains, but also to quell the raging sea. In verse 7, he says, Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. And in scripture, the churning sea is symbolic of the power of chaos and evil in opposition to God. How often these forces seem out of control in our world, and yet God can subdue them as easily as Jesus stilled the waves amid the storm. Jesus says this in Mark 4.39, Peace, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, third, David links this power over the raging waters to God subduing the nations. He stills the tumult of the peoples in verse 7. Like the seas and nations do not subdue themselves, but are calmed only by the action of God. And the classic instance that joined God's control over the seas and his power to subdue human evil was that Israel's passage through the Red Sea. God's mighty hand held back the waves until his people had passed safely through and then cast the seas on the raging charioteurs of the Pharaoh, quieting their rebellious voices forever. This example points out that God is the only real source of world peace, not the cunning of the world's statements, not peace treaties, but God. And given this truth, we ought to pray to God as the only source of peace, both on the great stage of history and in the turbulence of our hearts. This is especially important today as we are seeing such turbulence all over the place, right? We see it in Europe, we see it in Ukraine, we see it in China, we see it in Russia, and we wonder, we might wonder, where is the Lord? What is happening in my world? And then we look at our personal lives. Maybe we look at our bank account. Maybe we look at the state of our marriage. Maybe we look at the state of our friendships or the state of our workplace. And we wonder, Lord, what is happening here? And we wrestle, we struggle for peace. And what we need to understand is that if we are in Christ, God has given us his peace. He's given us access, Romans 5 tells us, to God through the Lord Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And this peace is being made real in our lives, as Philippians 4, 6-8 tells us, through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And now David notes in Psalm 65, 8, that the news of God's mighty deeds inevitably spreads his fame far and wide. He says, those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. And distant peoples heard of what God had done and were filled with reverent awe to signs and so in a measure acknowledged him. A notable example is Rahab of Jericho who heard God's mighty deeds in freeing Israel from Egypt. She testified to Joshua's spies in Joshua 2, 9-10. 
I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. For we know, we, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And so something similar happens today when unbelieving secular leaders call for prayer in response to natural disasters. Both the grandeur of the creation and man's inability to control nature summon praise to God from the east to the west, from the going out of the morning and the evening, as we see in Psalm 65, 8. Whereas secular people call to God with no sense of his favor, God's people rejoice not only in the might of God, but in the promise to be uh, the God of our salvation. And third, David praises the Lord not only as the God of grace and the God of might, but also as a God of plenty. God is glorified not only in the temple and out in creation, but also in the harvest field, where his people rejoice in his bounty. And it would be possible, perhaps, for a deliverer to be gracious and strong enough to save, but yet to do so only sparingly. And yet the true and the living God blesses with amazing bounty and is thereby worthy of our highest praise and our submissive faith. And as he surveys creation, David marvels at the wonderful way in which God brings water to an otherwise dry and barren land with life abounding as a result. In verse 9, he says, you visit the earth and water it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. Your water, its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth, as we see in Psalm 65, 9 through 10. To appreciate David's excitement over the water that God provides, we need to realize how closely people in ancient agrarian societies relied on rain for life. John Oswald explains, If the rain came at the appropriate time, one could hope for good crops, which meant enough food for bread for the coming year and seed for the following year's crop. And unless the waters came, the entire society would stare famine in the face. Now, David looks out about and sees abundant water streaming through the land, and he lifts his heart and prays to the God who provided it. He seems to use the expression, the river of God, in verse 9, to symbolize the clouds of the sky that float by and drop water throughout all the land. The efficiency of God's natural irrigation system far outstrips anything devised by man. With rain falling and the furrows are all watered, the plowed ground is softened for planting and the growth of the fields is blessed. Now, David especially rejoices to see how God brings life to lands that man has not even cultivated, wilderness regions that turn into their pastures as we see in verse 12. He considers untended fields bursting with flowers and green growth ripe for the feeding of flocks as a picture of creation's joyful response to the bounty of its creator. And so also for the cultivated valleys that deck themselves with grain, they shout and sing together as we see in verse 13. If this is nature's visible response to the blessing of God's rich bounty, how much more ought the hearts of his redeemed people to overflow with adoring gratitude for the plenty that God has granted so abundantly to us? Now, there's an obvious spiritual analogy to the bounty, the bounteous harvest that David describes here. In verse 9, he says, the river of God especially represents the flow of spiritual blessing flowing from the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Psalms 46.4 spoke of a river whose stream make glad the city of God, 
referring to God's refreshing grace for all Christians. After all, David's greater son, Jesus Christ, stood apart during the one harvest feast and cried out to his people in John 7, 37-38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. John immediately informs us that Jesus was referring to the ministry of the Holy Spirit who would come after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. You see, the Bible teaches that just as God provided waters to make Israel's fields abound, so also the gracious work of the Holy Spirit brings spiritual blessing and vitality to the Christian's life. Through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit spread waters of salvation to seep into sinners' hearts, bringing faith to life, softening the ground of hard and barren souls, so they abound with the fruit of righteousness, peace, and joy. Ezekiel speaks of this in Ezekiel 36, 25-26. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And so David's analogy in Psalm 65 between rainfall and the blessings of the Holy Spirit, it teaches us several lessons which we need to stop and ponder briefly to consider what they mean for our praise to God. The first lesson is that nature does not function on its own to provide the harvest, but it is God himself who brings forth plenty from the earth. People today, they like to talk about Mother Nature and the creation as though the natural order uh, uh, automatically provided good things. And yet David reminds us in this psalm that God's own hand blesses the harvest to provide plenty for mankind so that every temple of blessing should cause us to praise the Lord. And the same is true in our salvation. Whenever a sinner is redeemed through grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and enters into a saving relation with Jesus Christ, this has happened because of God's personal, gracious, and mighty work in their life. If you have been saved through faith in Christ alone, then you should realize that God did not merely send down the gospel to you from afar, but placed his own hands on your heart through the ministry of the Spirit and brought you to eternal life. Whenever we experience the spiritual blessings that belong to the people of God, we should thus exclaim with Paul in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And second, notice how David acknowledges secondary causes so that a natural process is involved in the coming of the harvest. The, the harvest is plentiful because of the rain that God has provided. And likewise, there are means that are necessary in our salvation, which God both provides and blesses. We think primarily of the word of God, by which alone a person can be born again, as 1 Peter 1.23 says. Without the word of life, we must perish in unbelief, which is why God graciously provided the scriptures through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And likewise, God provided a prayer as a means for our communion with him. If we will faithfully make use of these means of grace, along with the worship of the church and its sacraments, then not only will these resources bring us blessing, but God will cause them to do so with his gracious power. God makes his word plow our hearts and bring them to saving life, just as God receives the seeds that we plant by prayer into his hands and sovereignly makes them burst forth in a rich harvest. And so Christians should therefore make diligent and joyful use of these mighty means of grace, just as ancient Israelites rejoiced at the spring and the summer rains that brought the harvest. 
Now, third, David poetically extols how the coming of God's presence results in an abounding of life. Psalm 65:11 says, You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. And here he pictures God's carriage gliding through the land, crops and flowers blossoming wherever he goes. And in this way, God's presence crowns the years with bounty. By which David means that the people who trust in God, they find their lives blessed with spiritual growth. And William Plummer writes this, Wherever God goes in mercy, there is fertility, so that a piece of hitherto barren land visited by him has the smell of a field which the Lord hath greatly blessed, he says. And so our great desire, therefore, should be for God to be among us, and we should fervently welcome his presence by pursuing humble, faithful, and holy lives. In fact, here is Psalm 65's true answer to the question that I asked at the beginning of our time together. Why should I bother to attend church? You see, when we see how great and good is the God of our salvation, we will answer with a different question, which is this. How can I give myself more fully give myself to praise my Savior God? How can I know more of the blessing that comes from his presence? The answer is simple. Open your heart, give yourself to the Lord, and the God of salvation will give you a bounty of life. Moreover, even in the wilderness of the world, the Holy Spirit will cause your years to abound with the same spiritual blessing that causes this well-watered fields and valleys to shout and sing together for joy to the Lord, as we see in Psalm 65, 13. You know, today we began, as I mentioned, with the question, why should I bother with the church? And many, many people today are, are asking this question. Isn't faith to be a private thing? Isn't it just to be within the walls of my own home and, and, and forget just bringing it out? And what we need to understand is, is that statement at its face is ludicrous. And I mean ludicrous. Think with me for a minute. If you love something, you want to tell other people about that thing. If you love a sports team, guess what? You're going to tell people about your sports team. You're going to you're going to know all the facts and ideas and on and on. If you enjoy a movie, you're going to tell everybody about that movie because you want them to see it. You see, we cannot help but tell other people about the very things in which we love. And this is the thing about this. We were created to worship We were created to worship God. We were created to know God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity on our hearts. And Psalm 16.11 tells us that we are to be satisfied in the Lord and in His grace. This This is the thing. We are too easily pleased by the world today. The question isn't, why should I even bother to attend church? The question is, why shouldn't I attend church? You see, the problem is in our Western mindset today, especially in America, we think we don't need the church today. I don't need to sit up there and listen to somebody talk, but let me ask you a question. Then why do you sit and listen to somebody talk on the news? Why do you sit and listen to podcasts? Why do you go on YouTube and watch a video? Why do you go to the movies? You're listening to somebody talk. And the, the issue becomes really ridiculous when you frame it that way, but it is ridiculous, period. I remember uh, a conversation with a man. This is when we, my wife and I lived in Idaho. They, this man told the, the pastor straight up, I don't need the preaching of the word. All I need is fellowship. 
Now, now the the statement by itself is 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 troublesome, to say the least. But he's not wrong. We do need fellowship, but not to the exclusion of preaching. See, when you when you set aside preaching, what happens is, you know what? Yes, we need to cultivate relationships with one another. Yes, we need to have get into each other's lives and where iron sharpens iron and all those things and so that we can figure out what's happening in one another's lives and to pray for one another in love and, and all those things. But see, what happens when we set aside the preaching of God's word for the fellowship of his people, we're pitting two things that are, are helpful to our, to our life in Christ. We're pitting them against each other. What I mean is, see, without the preaching of God's word, we cannot have real fellowship with one another. Because what we need is we need doctrine. And doctrine comes from the word. And the word is to be preached in season and out of season. In fact, pastors are commanded, commanded in Acts 20 and 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word, the whole word, the whole counsel of God. That is, that is an essential part of the pastor's job. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, uh, pastors are to be able to teach <laughs> and so and to do it well for God's glory alone. And so pitting, pitting fellowship against the preaching of God's word, it says all I need is other people in my life. I remember in I remember when I was in seminary now, well over a decade ago, and I remember what people would say. Well, why do you have this large stack of books? Well, I'm in seminary. Oh, okay. You know, I, I'm going to have church of right over here in the corner at the coffee shop that I'm in. And, and I remember having many of these conversations. Do, what do you think a church is? Do you, do you need to sit under biblical preaching? Do you, do you need the care of God's people? Where, how do you get care? Uh, how about the sacraments? Who, who's accountable for you? Who's shepherding you? Who, no, my Bible study. And I just, at, the, that, at some points, I just got to the point where I said to them, no, this is not a church. Bible study, great. Bible study, studying the Bible, reading, talking, fellowshipping, praying, a man with a man and a woman with a woman, no problem. Church members gathering together at a coffee shop, having a meal together during the week, praise the Lord, you know? But that's not a church. It's not a church. And this is, the, this is the danger of our Western individualism today. Is We have said that, you know what? Nobody can tell me what to do in matters of religion. And yet, why do you watch the news? Why do you listen to the news? Why do you listen to any, why do you read any opinion writer who is telling you what they think and you're hearing what they have to say? And how much more do you need to be taught by a biblically qualified pastor from the word of God so that you might learn to rightly handle the word of God. And how much more important is it to rightly handle eternal things than it is temporal things? After all, we're talking about people's souls. And so what this shows, the, the question even, that the matter of pitting fellowship over preaching or any other matter it shows a priority. It shows what we treasure. It shows what we value. We cannot, we were made to worship God. And we will, no matter what, we will seek after the things that we love. 
We will prioritize them. We will treasure them. That's what we're, that's what makes worship and what we worship a matter of eternal importance. If we're worshiping the world, we're not worshiping God. A house divided against itself, Jesus says, cannot stand. It will fall. We know that. If the house doesn't have a firm foundation, guess what? It will flounder. It will fail. It will not stand up against the wind. It will not uh, stand up against fire or anything else. We know this to be a fact. That's why, you know, when you have your home inspected, they check the foundation. And yet, how much... Do we even do we even ask the question about our spiritual foundations whether they are rooted in the only revelation that God has given to us in the Bible the word of God and that is the only way for us to know God and that is the only way for us to be pointed to Christ ourselves and the the thing is is as John Newton said it is a well instructed christian who knows their need of God of the grace of God and of the God of all grace. See, we not only need the grace of God, Newton is saying, but we need the God who provides the grace, the source. And he does that. And this Lord, this King, yes, he bled and died so that we could come to saving faith. But he died for a reason. He died to place us in local churches with one another so that together we would praise his name together so that we would grow together in community with one another not apart from one another but with one another and this is this confronts our western sensibilities directly and it answers the question why we need to bother with the church at all but it starts at the right place with god and not with us at the center and that's the real problem with the question why should i even bother with church anymore why shouldn't i just go to to Bible study at Starbucks or my favorite coffee shop or my favorite restaurant. Why do I have to be in the lives of other people? There's no church that agrees with me, with everything that I think and with everything I hold dear. Let me tell you something about that. You don't have to agree with everything that the church that you go to believes and preaches. But you do need to agree on the essentials of the faith. Do they open the Bible? Do they preach from it verse by verse and line by line? Do, do they preach the saving grace of God in the Word? Do they have a sound understanding of Scripture? Do they have a sound understanding of what the church is and the mission of God in the world? Guess what? You can leave aside all the other uh, eschatological end times uh, viewpoints as long as they believe in the second coming of Christ and they believe in the Trinity and the deity of Christ, just to name a few matters, you can go to that church. And guess what? You can disagree with the pastor when he preaches his particular viewpoint on the return of the Lord Jesus and the timing therein of it. You can. Guess what? I have many times. And it's okay to agree to disagree on those matters and have those conversations. In fact, this shows real maturity. What shows zero maturity is refusing to go to church because you disagree with a particular pastor's particular viewpoint on a matter that at the end of the day doesn't matter. In fact, one, uh, one pastor that I had in California said one time, if I'm right and we go up and we're raptured, praise God. But if I'm wrong, guess what? I'll, and we're still here. I'll tell you, you were right. That's a mature attitude. You see, 
we not only have a great need of the God of grace, we have a great need of of the grace of God that God gives to us. And because that's true, we have a great need of one another. I mean, how else are we going to not be hardened, as Hebrews 3.13 says, by today? Rather, what we need is we need to exhort one another while today is today. That means that we need to one another each other as we're taught over 50 times in the New Testament. It's hard to go through hard times, challenging times. It's hard to do that by yourself and still walk with the Lord. It's, it's, it's almost impossible. I, I have yet to see somebody do it, in fact. In the 35 years that I've been a Christian, I have seen many Christians or professing Christians, I should say, that have walked away from the faith because they said, you know what, I can do this on my own. I can do this as a lone ranger, a lone wolf, whatever you prefer. You see, you were not made to do this walk of faith alone. You have the Trinity, the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be sure, as a Christian, at work in your life, to affecting your salvation and your growth from the Son, Jesus Christ, to be sure. But God is also working in the lives of other people, and you need them. You need their experiences, their uh, their learning, their knowledge, their understanding, their perspective, as, as you together join together. And sometimes you're going to butt heads. Praise God. That conflict, it shows even more about the state of our hearts. Conflict and criticism like few other things. They draw out what is really in uh, in our hearts. They show, they reveal the state of our, the health of our walk with the Lord. And that's hard to deal with difficult things. It's hard to deal with challenging things apart by yourself. You need other people to walk alongside of you. In fact, Galatians 6, 2, it commands us to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. By the way, that's a command. But the command is rooted in the love of God that is in the great commandment, which is Matthew 22, 37 through 40, which is to love your Lord, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. You see, what that means is part of loving God means walking with God. Part of walking with God means being united to God through faith in Christ. And part of being united to Christ by faith in his name means you have communion with Christ. That means you need to be walking with Christ in order to bear each other's burdens. By the way, in the next verse in Galatians 6, 2, it talks about that. So that you will not be caught in any transgression. We're to be careful. Proverbs 4, 23 says, To guard our hearts with all due diligence, for from it springs the issues of life. In, in 1 John 5, 21, John tells us, Little children, keep yourself from idols. And why is this so important? You see, I need you and you need me. We need one another. Supremely, we need the grace of God. And and this is why not only do we have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for our need, but we have a great Christ who provides a community centered around the word of God and in fellowship with the people of God under biblically qualified pastors where we can hear the word of God preached rightly and accurately so that we can learn to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and we can learn together uh, even more even if we know how to rightly handle the word of god for god's glory and our good we gather together to then scatter wherever god would have us be during the week 
in our vocation, our job, so that we can make disciples who make disciples of Christ wherever he has placed us. All to the praise of our triune Lord. And so don't ask, why should I bother to attend the church today? Ask, why aren't you in a church? What is stopping you from attending church? And usually the issue is you think that you need to clean yourself up. That's that's one one of the answers I've got. Uh, don't, I've got to clean my my life up in order to go to church. Can I just say something before we end? The truth is, our sin we sin to such a degree that we have made all of us a mess of our lives. That's why Romans three twenty three says, "All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." But it doesn't stop there. The passage continues telling us about the person and the work of Christ who alone is enough to save us. And in 1 Peter 5, uh, towards the end of the chapter, uh, Peter exults in the God of grace. You see, we serve a God of grace. We serve a God of grace. He has given us grace upon grace upon grace. He has saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He has indwelt us and by the Spirit. He has sealed us with the Spirit. He has sent us out on mission for God's glory. And He has saved us so that we can be part of a local church under biblically qualified pastors. This is why I need you and you need me, why we need the church to help us to grow, because the church is, is not man's idea. It is God's idea. It is, it is uh, instrument A in our lives that God is using to bring about uh, not only our growth in grace, but other people's growth in grace. And he's using the church, local churches, to make disciples and to evangelize the lost in our communities. And we need to be part of the church. We need to be part of the mission of the church. You know, it's great. Um, you know, the Lord uses servants of grace all over the world. But you know what? At the end of the day, we are a resource to the local church. We are not a local church. We don't aim to replace the local church. We aim to come alongside the local church, to be a resource to the local church, to point to the one, to the, to the head of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So I would urge you to consider these things for, for your own growth, for your own salvation, why you need the church, why you need to worship the Lord, why your salvation is not only personal, it's corporate, why you need the assembly of the people of God, and you need the means of his grace that he provides therein. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sufficient in and of yourself. You are sufficient not only to save us, as you do, because of Christ, but you are sufficient Lord, to draw us into a community because you saved us not just for our own benefit, but to walk alongside one another, to do life with one another uh, under biblically qualified male pastors for God's glory alone. So Lord, I, I just pray for those who c c would consider doing life with God's people that even though they might have been hurt in the past, if they feel that they need to clean themselves up, Lord, there, there is healing in your wings. There is help in the name of Christ for those who have been hurt, for those who have been uh, really hurt by the church, and even those who think that they need to clean, clean themselves up. There is help and there is hope in the word, and there is help and hope in the gospel. So, Lord, help us 
in the church to walk alongside the hurting. Help us to be a place where we welcome one another and do life with one another, with God's word at the forefront and with the grace of God on our lips. And where we fail, where we err, where we sin, where we hurt one another, may we be quick to repent and quick to admit it, owning up to our own failures and confessing them and turning from them in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.